Well, I want to, um, we're going to jump into week two of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality in a second, but I want to give you a little quick update. Um, I got some news last Sunday morning that at that point I wasn't able to share, but I want to share with you this morning. Uh, Tim and Leslie Heath, who are part of our church, they attend Life Pacific College. Uh, they're from Las Vegas. Uh, they were actually you know, brother and sister who uh, are just near and dear to our church family. And uh, they were up at summer camp with us this last summer and, and serving their guts out. They're absolutely amazing young people. Um, but while we were at camp, they got a call that their mom was in the hospital. She's been battling cancer. Um, and she passed away last Saturday evening. Um, there were some of us, Tom and Deb and Abby and Megan and myself, that were able to go out to Vegas yesterday for the, the memorial service, which was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, you've met Tim and Leslie, can only imagine how incredible, incredible their mom was. Um, I mentioned that for two reasons. First of all, they would, they would appreciate your prayers. Uh, there are two young people who are now being thrust into a place of having to figure out uh, estate, you know, and dealing with the estate and meeting with attorneys. There's a, a home involved. And so just very overwhelming on top of the fact that they're, they're coming back to school in just a few weeks. And so um, uh, quite a heavy load. So would you be praying for them? And then as, as you well know, um, funerals and, and this whole process are quite, quite costly. And while their mom had been sick, uh, they weren't anticipating. It came as a surprise. Her passing came pretty abruptly. And so there's a GoFundMe page that's been set up to help raise support for Tim and Leslie. Uh, we're going to have a link to that on our church Facebook page. Um, it should, it'll be up shortly. Um, if you want to hop on that and, and bless Tim and Leslie uh, with a financial gift just to help them out, uh, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Amen? It, what, it, you know, it's such a such a blessing to be able to care for church family in times of need. It's great to celebrate the good times and when things are going just well, but it, it really is a privilege for us to stand together in, uh, in times of need. I'm going to move this back a little bit because I'm anticipating some walking happening right here, so um, I don't want to trip myself up. Well, emotionally healthy spirituality, we are into week two, and if you're feeling like I am, it's kind of that drink out of the fire hose a little bit. Uh, this content and the material is, it is very deep, um, but so transformative and so life-changing. We had, uh, as Russ and Monica mentioned, uh, EHS course started this last Wednesday. And um, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to clarify this. This week is the last week that you can jump in. Um, we started the ball rolling last week. Um, beyond this, this week, it'll just be too difficult to join into the small group setting. Um, and so this is the last chance that you have to jump in. So if you'd like to be a part of that, sign up, sign up at the table. Um, this all works together. The Sunday morning messages, the books that we're reading. Um, by the way, if, you, if you're not a part of the class, but you'd like to pick up the book and read the book along uh, with us, you can do that. It's available on Amazon or iBooks or Kindle or whatever platform, either like paper or electronic. Um, it is, it is, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is one of my top favorite, top five favorite books, um, and it's a great one to have on your bookshelf, and I encourage you to, to grab that, um, but we're gonna, we're gonna keep pressing in. Week two, uh, started last week, uh, kicking things off with talking about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, and kind of set our course for this journey, and so today we're moving into uh, the second part, which is knowing God that you may know, uh, knowing yourself rather that you may know God. I made this statement last week, emotional health and contemplative spirituality, when interwoven together, offer nothing short of a spiritual revolution, transforming the hidden places deep beneath the surface of our lives. We talked about the iceberg. In fact, you can see uh, the depiction of the iceberg over on the right. And, and, and if you know anything about icebergs, you know this, that the, the majority of its mass is below the water. You see 10% above the water on average, and, and then there's 90% below the water that you don't see. And it's true of us as well that 
we, we show the 10% of ourselves to the world around us. When we come to church, when we go to work, as we go throughout our days, we, we let people, we let people in to 10%. Yet there's so much of us that's hidden, that's below the surface, that's not visible, not only to other people, but, but quite often to ourselves. There's parts of us that we're not even fully aware of that God wants to bring to the forefront See, because ignoring things doesn't make them go away. You ever found that to be true, right? If you walked into your kitchen and your countertop is covered in ants, and you just go, you know, if I just leave that alone and come back later, it should be good, right? And no, that's not, not it at all. Um, in our home, we get to work quickly, and we're figuring things out and wiping them out and get, get rid of those ants. There's things that we just need to deal with. The problem in Western especially in the Western context, in the Western church, is that we, we get very good at ignoring parts of who we are. And the problem with that is if we don't address those issues, those places of emotional unhealth in our lives, we can't grow spiritually. Again, those things are interwoven more than we even realize. And so, so today, know yourself that you may know God. In fact, we can put up on the screen, we have uh, eight weeks, just as a reminder, here's what we're covering. Uh, next week, going back in order to go forward, week four is journey through the wall, uh, enlarging your soul through grief and loss, discovering the rhythms of the daily office and Sabbath, grow into an emotionally mature adult, and go to the next step to develop a rule of life. So this is really the first step. Last week week was kind of the, the prologue or the intro to the, the, the series Today is kind of step one. It's the, the first step in this journey. And there was a reason that knowing yourself is an important first step uh, with these seven pathways within EHS. I want you to listen to this passage. The words will be up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, four, uh, verse 22 through 24 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, be put, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul here writing to the church in Ephesus saying, listen, you have to realize that there's the old self and the new self. And you have to choose where you're going to live your life. That you can come to Christ, yet live according to that old self, that old identity, that old way of doing things. But when we come to Christ, what he's saying is, I'm going to renew you. I'm going to renew your spirit and your mind. I'm going to do a whole new work. Romans chapter 8 talks about this. I want to do something new. I want, I want you to be a new creation, have a new identity. And the problem with an iceberg kind of life is that we walk into that new life just partially, yet there's so much of us stuck in the old self, and it creates a schism or a gap that really limits our spiritual growth. And awareness of yourself and your relationship with God are so closely related. Let me give you a couple of examples of what this might look like in someone's life. Let's say you're an introvert. I want to ask the introverts to raise their hands. Um, let's say you're an introvert, but you live as an extrovert. You're an introvert, but you live as an extrovert. See, because you feel like being an introvert is a bad thing. And you live an extroverted life, it means that the people around you are actually not getting the real you. They're getting a fake you. How about this one? You're asked to go somewhere or do something, and you do it, but you're not really into it. You don't really want to go, and, and the whole time you're there, you're, you're kind of checked out. Mentally, you're there. I'm like, I'm here in body, but the rest of me is not present. And, and maybe you even do it over and over and over again. Every time you get that invitation, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll go, I'll go. Yet your heart, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be a part of what it is, or you don't want to be in that place. Whoever you're saying yes to is not getting the real you. Maybe you have anger and disappointments, but you feel guilty. 
You feel guilty every time you feel anger or you feel disappointed, and it kind of bubbles up in you, and you're like, no, 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 I can't, I can't feel those emotions. That's not, it's not righteous. It's not good. So when you're with your friends, you're nice and syrupy, but inside you're miserable. The people that you're with are not getting the real you. They're getting an imposter. It's fake. It's not real. Same thing is true in our relationship with God. If you don't know yourself, if you don't know who you are and you can't be honest with yourself about who you are and what you're feeling, you can't give those parts of yourself to God. You can't surrender them to him and say, Lord, here I am in in the fullness of the messiness of who I am because you have to hold up that pretense. You have it with God to the degree that you have it with yourself. The depth to which you're willing to be honest about who you are will determine how deep you can walk with the Lord. Now, I know, can I just say, like, we're diving right in. Like, we're in the deep end already. You're like, well, no, like, run up. No, like, funny stories right off the bat. Um, but we're, we've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover this morning, and I, I don't want to miss. And so we're just going to kind of hit it right out of the gate. Amen? One of the clearest places we see this in Scripture is actually in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. See, when Adam and Eve were together before the fall, there was incredible unity. They were totally unified inside themselves and between themselves and with God. We say that again. Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall were totally, totally unified inside of themselves. They knew who they were and what they were about, why they existed, because God had told them. They were unified with each other relationally between the two of them, and they were unified with God. They were the same person inside and outside. After the fall, though, after the decision to sin, after Satan tempts Eve and says, did God really say, and then Adam and Eve together walk down that road, they were no longer integrated. They're no longer unified, but they become compartmentalized and divided, separated. The rebellion also results in the cutoff of relationship with them and God and within themselves because they now have to lie to themselves about who they are and their identity starts unraveling. Their true authentic self was now shattered They no longer looked like the people that God had created and fashioned. They began immediately the construction of a false self and began to live apart from God's original intent for their lives. They had to cover up. They had to mask. They had to hide. See, we too reflect our first parents, Adam and Eve. We all come from Adam and Eve, right? And so they're our first parents. We too are divided inside of ourselves because of their sin. We inherited that same thing. Unsure of who we are, having to cover up and and mask and put layers on and, and essentially lie to ourselves. We cover ourselves, our authentic selves with layers of fig leaves layer upon layer upon layer as we grow up, as we move through life. I can't let people see who I really am. I have to cover that part of who I am. I have to stuff that and repress that, and that behavior is not okay, and that emotion, definitely boys don't cry, right? Those kinds of things, And, and we layer and layer and layer until we lose sight of what our authentic self is. And we have to recognize that it's very root that this is all part of sin, it's all rooted in sin. It's not rooted in that you're a bad person. You have to identify what the root is. The root is sin and the sin nature. And we have to know this. This is not God's design for you and me. It's not God's design. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we need to recognize some of the symptoms. Fig leaves of the full self. What does this look like? I have a list of 15 things. We're going to read through this. 
Um, if you want to try and write them all down, you can. If you have the book, they're all in the book as well. Um, but, but, but more than just trying to capture it, would you just listen? As we're already in a place where we're saying, okay, Lord, would you speak? Would you just listen and, and maybe even pay attention to what prompts your heart or touches your heart? So here's this list of 15 things. We'll start with the first five False self symptoms. I say yes when I really mean no. I get depressed when people are upset with me. I have a need to be approved by others to feel good about myself. I act nice on the outside, but inside I can't stand you. I often remain silent in order to keep the peace. Number six, I believe that if I make mistakes, I myself am a failure. I criticize others in order to feel better about myself. I avoid looking weak or foolish for not having the answer. Number nine, I have to be doing something exceptional to feel alive. Number 10, I have to be needed to feel alive. 11, I am fearful and can't take risks. Number 12, I do what others want so they don't get mad at me. Number 13, I use knowledge and competence to cover my feelings of, inadequ of inadequacy. Number 14, I want my children to behave well so others will think I am a good parent. And number 15, I compare myself a lot to other people. 15 symptoms, 15 fig leaves that exist, things that I imagine, because I read this list and there's a few that just, they don't touch my heart, they kind of nail me. Right? You're like, oh, oh. And there's probably more than these, but I think this is a good start. Fifteen symptoms of the false self. That if you're dealing with any of these, there's probably some work that God wants to do in your life and bring about healing. Now, in the same way, when you go to a doctor and maybe you're not feeling well or you know, you're battling something, and what the doctor is going to do is look at the symptoms in order to identify the underlying cause, right? We understand that we don't, we don't just treat the symptoms. We want to make sure that we're treating whatever is causing the symptom. Are we on the same page? It would be such a bummer if I ended the sermon right now, right? Hey, okay, we're done. Good luck with that. Um, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the underlying causes. And rather than trying to unpack every one of these 15 things, recognize that it all comes back to some very key things, some very under, key underlying causes in our lives. And so I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I just say there is hope, there is healing, God is, God is love, and he cares about you. And, and, and going below the surface and starting to delve into and looking at some of these fractured parts of who we are, can, can we just agree it's not easy? It's not easy. In fact, it could kind of rock your world. But God wants to rock your world in a loving way. He wants to turn the iceberg upside down not to expose or shame you, but to bring wholeness and healing. Amen? 1 Samuel 17, we're going to continue looking at the life of David. Last week, we talked about David and Saul and how the fact that, that David was, uh, he had that, that time with the Lord and he was really contemplative and, and, and was able to recognize the, the power of God in his life where Saul just kind of did his own thing and and it took him down a bad road. Today, we're going to look at David and Goliath. David and Goliath. It's a story that most people, whether churched or unchurched, whether Christ followers or not, 
Even people who've not really even read their Bibles, most people are familiar with the story of David and Goliath. And in fact, we even use the term, oh, it's a real David and Goliath kind of situation uh, to describe, you know, situations that are kind of, uh, there's an inequality, uh, the odds are kind of stacked against. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, to set the scene or the context here, uh, David, who is the fourth son of his father, Jesse, is sent by his father to the battleground. Uh, they're, they're in this valley in Israel, um, one mile sloping, half a mile down in each direction, meaning down in the middle. And so, you know, a mile across is, is quite a distance, but you can kind of, you can see across a mile, especially if you've got clear line of sight. Camped on one side is the army of the Philistines, on the other side is the army of Israel. And they've drawn up this battleground, there's battle lines, and, and they're facing off against each other. And, and they didn't just show up. They've been here for 40 days. They've been there for 40 days. That's, that's quite a while, just over a month. But they're not really fighting yet. What they're doing is kind of squaring off. It's the fight between, before the fight. And on the Philistine side is a giant named Goliath. And Goliath is nine feet tall, nine feet tall. So put it in, in context, because I have a hard time like picturing that. Uh, your average door, these, these frames right here are about seven feet. So add another two feet. So he's about the height of those lights right there. In fact, I'm going to go stand over here. You imagine you're my height, and you're facing someone that big. That's a little scary, right? Come on. Is that scary? I run into that guy in a dark alley. All right, we're going to see if I can get a gold in the Olympics in the 100-meter sprint. He was a very large man. In fact, it says that his armor weighed 125 pounds. His armor weighed 125 pounds. Now think about this. His armor to protect himself in battle weighed 125 pounds, which means he, was, he had to be able to move with this armor on, which means that he had the physical strength to be agile carrying 125 pounds of armor. This man is a beast. It says that it, the tip of, his, uh, tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. 15 pounds. That's massive. That's just the tip of his spear. And this spear, this javelin, meant that he could kill from a distance. That he could get that thing up on his, his arm and throw it like a missile. His armor bearer would precede him. And I imagine his armor bearer is probably a big guy as well, right? His armor must have been a big guy to carry that shield. He has this large rectangular shield. And here's the thing about Goliath. He's intimidating He's experienced, he's got a mouth on him, and he's got a mouth on him because, well, he's had a lot of victory, right? And, and, and the Philistines love him because they make, he makes their job easy. He stands out there, and, and so he's standing in the valley, and he comes down towards the Israelites, and for 40 days, he had been taunting them and yelling at them and cussing at them and doing all kinds of things to aggravate them. In 1 Samuel 17, 11, says this, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. One translation says terrified. So Saul, the king of Israel, who himself is a big guy. We read about him earlier. He was, he was nothing to shake your head at. He was a big guy. The king of Israel and the entire army were dismayed and greatly af afraid. They were terrified of this man, so much so that they'd been sitting there for 40 days and says that twice a day that Goliath would come out and taunt them. So 80 times now, he's come out and he's calling them names and he's, he's challenging them. He was relentless and they were afraid. Continues in chapter 17, verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, and this, I'm sorry, let me give you a context. David has now arrived. Let me go back a little bit. David's father, Jesse, says, listen, David, I want you to go to the battle. 
And, and I, I want you to just kind of check out what's going and, and take some bread and cheese and deliver them to your, your brothers and to the commanders and just get an update and then, and then bring me something back just to let, them, let me know that they're okay. And so David now arrives on the scene. He's talking to his brothers. He's the younger brother, the, the, the fourth out of ultimately would be uh, eight brothers, but, but he's the fourth um, and he's talking to his brothers, and while this is happening, Goliath comes out. So reading in verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw him, fled from him and were much afraid. Okay, they're terrified and they're running away. Verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love this verse. I love the resolve and the passion in David's voice, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, now, but it's kind of comical as well. Because David was standing with a group of soldiers, David the shepherd boy, David the young one, David who's not wearing armor and a, a, a spear, is standing there with them. Goliath comes out, they all run away, and here's Dave. Davy, who is this guy? And you picture his brother Eliab hiding. Kind of an interesting scene. But David is ticked off. Why? Because David was true to himself and he was true to God. David knew who he was. He knew who he was before the Lord. We know this because we can read the Psalms and we hear about David's brutal honesty. I'm a mess, God. I need you. My life is falling apart all throughout his life. The brutal honesty with which he writes. David was true to himself and to God, which in that moment rose up and he said, who is that guy? And what will be done for the person that removes this reproach this guy who's standing against us. We see that David identifies, and we'll talk about these three points. There's three things that David has to cut through, three obstacles or three underlying causes that David cuts through to be his authentic self in God. Because in that moment, David had a choice. Do I defy this guy? Do I look at him and go, there's no way? Or do I join my brothers hiding behind the tent? He stood his ground. Three obstacles that he had to cut through. Three things that we too have to cut through in order to get to the heart behind the symptoms. First thing was this, his family. His family. Verse 28 through 31 says this, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against him, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Huh? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. So here's his brother. Again, kind of comical. His brother is hiding. David is going, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Let's take care of this, this guy. Let's get him. Eliab gets angry. Eliab gets angry at David, not at Goliath. Which if you imagine, it's easier to get mad at your younger brother than it is the giant, Right? Why'd you come down here? You just wanted to see the battle. I know the evil that is in your heart. And Eliab's words cut deep. Like they're, they're bitter. 
There's history here. This isn't just in the moment, right? Because if, you, if you're the big older brother who's supposed to be leading the family, yet you see your younger brother with the Lord worshiping, telling the stories, which we'll hear about in a second, of killing a lion and a bear, Eliab was probably a little jealous of his little brother. And it evidences itself in anger. He's jealous. He's mad. And he tries to shame him and call him out. And I love David's response. Eliab's talking, and he's like, well, I'll just talk to somebody else. I'm done with you. And all of the people responding, I imagine all three of his brothers probably said the same thing. Who are you, little guy, that you would even come down here and think that you can make a difference? His, his younger brother. Eliab, by the way, is probably about 10 to 15 years older, so he's older by a long shot. No support. No support from his brothers. In fact, his father was like, hey, just can you go run this errand for me? But no real support. And we don't ever hear of uh, a mom in David's life. We hear about dad, but there's no talking about uh, D David's mom. His family is a little bit messed up. There's some issues in David's family. See, Eliab is basically saying to David, you're a nobody, you're useless, you're evil, go home, go home. Here's the thing, church, we all come from families, and they run the gamut, even the best families, even the best family represented in this room today adds layers of false self Speaking down, putting down, putting false expectations that cause us to layer up fig leaves to cover up who we really, really are. We grew up in families and cultures where certain parts of our true selves are not acceptable. They're cut off and surrendered and hidden just so we can survive. Just so that we can survive and maybe not make someone angry with us. Many people describe feeling invisible in their families growing up, being told don't think or express certain thoughts, don't feel certain feelings. Hey, you better not make a mistake. Don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. Don't be weak. Don't be vulnerable. And as we grow from childhood into adulthood or young adulthood, find that our culture and our caregivers who, can we just be real, are just doing the best they know how to do? Just doing the best they know how to do because like my dad and my mom grew up in a family and, and their parents grew up in a family and so you receive layers of their stuff as well. But so often we discover that the people in our lives that shape our culture and our caregivers loved us not for who we are or who God uniquely crafted us to be, but for who they wanted us to be. We set these goals, and then we love our children or care for our children, not for who they are, but kind of where we want to see them end up, thinking that it's a loving thing, and in the process, start covering the true identity and the true self. We were lovable and good enough if we got married, went to college, had children, attained a certain level of uh, in our careers and jobs, fulfilled our parents' dreams, excuse me, were productive, and in our culture, especially if we made a lot of money. Those are the marks of success, right? These are the steps that you will take. You'll go to school, you'll fin you, know, you graduate high school, you'll go to college, you'll meet someone, you'll get married, you'll get a good job, you'll have children, grandchildren, right? You'll live in a nice house, you'll have nice things, you'll go on a vacation every year and you'll make lots of money and you'll be comfortable. That's the expectation. Is that not the American dream? And so we cover the true self to attain someone else's dream for us, not even just our parents, but an American culture that says this is what you have to do. And because of that, David is ignored and disregarded. Some of you were born and nobody noticed. God did. God noticed. 
He noticed because he planned you. He noticed because he had you born exactly where you were born, when you were born, to the family you were born into. It was a part of his divine plan. Second thing is this. David has to deal with significant others who have authority and experience. In his case, it was this king named Saul. Verse 32 and 33, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Okay, context. This is David the shepherd boy talking to the king of Israel. Okay? David says to the king who is terrified, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. There's no way. Listen, I'm in a place of authority in your life, and I'm just telling you right now, you don't have what it takes. You're just a kid. And he's been a warrior since he was a kid. You don't have what it takes to defeat this guy. See, Saul had led an army of 330,000 men. He was famous. He was revered. He was experienced. And most of that just in his own eyes. People knew who Saul was. And he says, you're not able to do it. You're only a boy. If I was David, and imagine if most of us were David, we probably would have cowered, folded, been overwhelmed in the presence of the king. I probably would have said, you're right, I can't. Why don't you, with your incredible experience, just tell me what we should do then? Or just left and gone back to the sheep. Not David. That's not his way. And I just tell you, everyone is fearful. Everyone is fearful. fearful. In fact, here's the army of Israel acting in fear. Not only that, they're acting like atheists. They're acting like there isn't no longer a God of Israel. They're acting like they don't have a higher power. They're afraid in the flesh. The whole army is frightened. They are not living by faith. The army of Israel is not living by faith. See, we can end up buying into this lie that those who go before us, those who had gone before David, those who go before us, they know the right way to do, do things. They have the answers. They know the right way to do life because they've got the experience. You must have the experience and so I'm going to listen. In fact, what, what Saul does is he says, okay, fine. David finally convinces him and says, listen, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go. And so Saul says, fine, what we'll do is we'll put my armor on you. And so they start strapping these pieces of armor to David. Again, this story is incredibly funny if you just picture it in your mind. David was way smaller than, than Saul. And armor was built to fit one person. And so they start strapping these pieces of armor to David. And he tries walking around and, and, and he goes, I, I can't do it. I can't walk in this. I can't, let alone fight. I can't walk. I'm not trained. I don't have any experience in this. Everyone's giving him advice at this point. It's like playing golf, right? Everyone's an expert when you're the one on the tee. Let me just tell you, if you do this and if you do that, if you put this sword on and you put, and if you just approach him, Wait a minute, weren't you the guys that were hiding, terrified, and now all of a sudden you want to tell me how to do it? And here's the thing, David admired the king. He didn't disregard him, and we see that later in David's life. He honored the king. He wasn't, he wasn't being a snotty kid. He didn't come with an attitude like, I'll show you guys. He didn't have an agenda. All he knew is that there was someone opposing the armies of Israel, and he's like, that's not okay. He admired the king. In fact, he recognized that the king had been trained, and he said that, you've got, you've got experience in this. I don't. Saul tried to give you his armor. Wouldn't you want them? But David realizes he can't go in these. In our lives, maybe coaches, teachers, friends, experts, pastors, 
maybe now or when you're growing up, people who have a lot of experience. And, and, and don't we say in church, well, you know, there's wisdom in counsel. Like you should ask, right? We should ask people what they think. And, 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 and hear me, I'm not saying don't seek counsel and don't seek wisdom, but so often we dismiss what God is speaking to our true self because someone else says, oh, no, 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 that's not very smart. No, I can't see how God would allow that. And God's going, no, no, I spoke that to you personally because I love you, and you were in your word, and I confirmed it, and then there was something else you heard. Oh, no, but, but my pastor said, or my friend, or that, that, that person who had that prophetic word for me. And so we start doubting our true self. We start doubting the things that God speaks to us because, well, that person has more experience. Can I tell you, this irritates the snot out of me. Because so many people in the Church of America have just been pressed down because someone with more experience told them, no, 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 it's not your time. You need to sit down. It's not, you know, no, you don't have what it takes. Well, I feel called, no, maybe in a few years. Who said you could speak for God? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that God won't put things on your heart to share with someone. Oh, but do it so carefully. Because you and I will give an account. We will give an account. Proverbs 15, 20 says this, wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Listen, listen to good counsel, but make sure that it's good counsel. I have so many people that I've talked to over the years who said, you know, I feel like God's talking to me about doing this. And I've talked to 15 or 20 people to ask them what they thought. Well, you're just thoroughly confused then. See, because we all speak out of our own falsehood. Whether we realize it or not. And the goal is to, to be transformed. But, but man, sometimes it just comes out. You ever had someone share a vision with you? And, and what comes out isn't their concern for you. It's their own insecurity. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, well, if you couldn't do it. God's not calling them to do it. He's speaking to you. David knew himself so well. He was able to dismiss the counsel of the king. He knew God so well that he was able to dismiss the counsel of the king because he knew in his own heart that it was wrong. And, he, and, and, and what God was saying to him was, you can do it. David was saying to himself, I can do this. Why? Because David was an expert about David. David, because then he shares, my king, let me just honor you, but but there's been times when I'm out watching my, my father's flocks and a bear came and, and I was able to kill it and rescue the sheep. And there was a lion that came and I was able to kill it. And, and multiple times this has happened. And so God has given me a particular skill set and gifting just as he has with you. And I just tell you, this is a dangerous passage if we're not emotionally healthy. Because we might say no to things that God's saying, wait, well, you're supposed to say yes. Or we may say yes to things that God's like, oh, time out. You're not being true. You're not being real with who you are. Third thing that David faced was this. this. Goliath. He faced Goliath. First Samuel 17, 41 through 43. And, and the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. David is now down in the valley. He's gone and he's picked up some stones, five stones from the brook, a little creek, and he's, he's come down into the valley. And for the first time in 40 days, Goliath has an opponent. And so he starts moving down the valley towards David. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Let me say that again. It came out weird. He disdained him. For he was but a youth. There it is again. You're just a kid. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Man, David is just not getting a break here today. 
He's not catching a break. We've got his brothers putting him down. We've got the king telling him what to do. And now we've got Goliath. Thank you so much. We've got Goliath calling him names and cursing him. Who likes to be cursed? Yeah, no, no. That was a win for me, right? No hands. No one likes to be cursed. You don't want to be put down. You're not going to purposely put yourself in a place where people are going to put you down. Which, by the way, is a a protection mechanism. I'm going to make sure that I'm safe and people just like me and don't say anything harsh or mean to me. David doesn't care. He says to, to David, Goliath says to David, you will die. When someone nine feet tall with 125 pounds of armor and a massive spear in his hand says to you, you're going to die, you don't blow that off. You don't blow that off, but, but David stands his ground. He was despised and cursed, mocked. I hate you, threatened with consequences. If you try that, well, you better watch out. If you give that a shot, it's not going to go well. If you try to change, come out, be your authentic self, you could die. At least that's what the enemy would say. See, Goliath is utterly sure of himself, and he's got no reason not to be. He's totally sure of himself. I've won all these battles, plus look at me. I'm awesome. But God is irrelevant to Goliath. In fact, in verse 8, he calls out the Israelites and he says, are you not the servants of Saul? He didn't even recognize God. It doesn't even factor on his radar. And funny, we'll always talk about the odds. What are our chances? Does it look good? Does it look like, you know, the pros and the cons? But in this circumstance, the odds were not overwhelming. Little David, the shepherd boy with his sling and the stones, the odds were not overwhelming because David knew his strengths so well. He knew that he was good with that sling. He knew he could defeat Goliath. So it didn't matter what Goliath said. It didn't matter what the curses were, what was coming his way. He knew himself and he knew God. He knew that God had empowered him. And David knew that he was young, right? Everyone was like, oh, but you're young. And David's like, I know. I know I'm young. I'm me. I live in this body. He knew he was young. And even at his young age, he knew himself and he knew God. And can I tell you that is the most powerful combination A young person, an old person, it doesn't matter. Someone who's aware of who they are and aware of the power of God in their lives put together, watch out. Watch out. See, David's radical alternative to giving into the fear, listening to his family over here saying, why are you even here? You're just here to see the show. Here with the king who has the experience. Well, You know what? I've got all the experience. Let me tell you why you shouldn't do this. And if you're going to do it, let me tell you how to do it. And here, Goliath, the enemy going, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to stomp you into the ground because you're nothing. David has an alternative. Verse 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistines. So we're going back a little bit. Here's what David is doing. See, he takes, Saul, uh, takes off Saul's armor. And he goes to what he knows. He goes to the weapon. He goes to the the thing that he knows that he's familiar with, that he's good at. And he gets those stones. See, his guidance comes from inside, from his relationship with God, not from external authority. Now, God has given us authority, but he is the ultimate authority. And he will speak to you personally before he will speak to you through somebody else. Why? Because he needs you to know if that, what that person is saying actually lines up with his, with his heart. Church, I can't emphasize this enough. 
When you hear the voice of God for yourself and you know it to be the voice of God, you will be able to discern what is true and what is false coming out of the mouths of other people. Knowing yourself and knowing God. The Holy Spirit inside of his unique person and yours. Stirring you up and speaking to you. See, David's life is not divided. He has a life of integrity. He lives true to who he is in God. See, David's not dependent on doing things the right way to be accepted or loved. David is not doing it out of guilt or sorrow for the nation of Israel. David is not doing it to keep the peace. I'll just, I'll sacrifice myself so that there'll be peace. David's not saying he has to succeed so that people will think well of him and say, wow, what an incredible person. David is not saying this is my chance to make an impact. I saw an opportunity for my 15 minutes of fame. See, the the moment between David taking off Saul's armor and him going down and facing Goliath, there there was a, a span of time, which is really the key to this story. He pushes aside all of the things that the world thrusts on him, and he has a moment with God. He goes down to that creek, down to that brook, and he's wandering and he's thinking about who he is and God, who God's made him to be. He recognizes that doesn't fit me, that's not me. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm comfortable with the tools that God has given me and given me skills for. See, God gave David common sense. God's given you common sense. It's not common sense to fight Goliath if David had a sword. That wouldn't have been common sense. To go up versus physical strength, David's strength against Goliath's strength would have been fatal. See, it's not an even match. The odds are stacked in David's favor because he has slingshot skills, crazy slingshot skills. And he knows it. So often in the church today as Christians, we give our common sense away. In moments where our heart is saying, no, 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 no. And we say yes because someone else told us to. Or there's an expectation. Or the enemy is lying to us. Can I just tell you, common sense is one of God's gifts to us. The Holy Spirit in you. Not your conscience, but because you've been marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit, that he will speak to you in those moments. And we need to learn to not ignore that voice. See, David gets counsel and he goes, ahead, he goes against it. But they don't see what David sees. David sees the living God. Uh, Goliath comes out and he says, Who, are you the armies of Saul? Because it says he said the same thing over and over, which by the way, the enemy of our souls is not creative. He says the same things over and over and over. Every day he comes out and he says the same things twice every day. Aren't you the armies of Saul? And David gets up and he goes, who is this guy to defy the armies of the living God? David sees the living God. He was relying on the right size, uh, the right parts of himself. See, David wasn't—it wasn't a size thing; it was a differentiation thing. And if you read chapter four in EHS in the in the book, you'll come across this term. Differentiation is this: the ability to hold on to who you are and who you are not. Put it this way: having your own beliefs, convictions, direction, goals, and values apart from the pressure around you. So that you don't change even when the world around you changes. That you don't change who you are and your personality and your decision making because you're in a different environment. That there's a consistent consistency. It's called differentiation. I can differentiate between what's false on the outside and what's true on the inside. Living true to the inner self. David has strengths that he's bringing to the battles. And he knows what they are. God has put strengths in you. And he wants you to know what they are. He wants you to discover 
what they are. And because of David's obedience, the whole nation is richly blessed and is victorious, and God is glorified in the midst of it. See, the greatest gift that you can give to the world is to be yourself, because when you are, people's lives are transformed and God gets the glory. But when we fake it, we all miss out. We all miss out. Here's four practical principles to begin making this transition, all right? So we've got the false self, the 15 symptoms that we talked about, three things that you have to deal with, and here's, some four, here's these four steps to making a transition. They'll be up on the screen, and I'm going to just touch on them very quickly because we're out of time. Number one is this, pay attention to your interior silence and solitude. We've talked about silence and solitude and taking time away, but, but there's times where you have to be quiet on the inside. You're not going to hear the voice of God on the inside if you're noisy on the inside. And so you have to quiet the voices. Number two is this, find trusted companions. Good counsel comes from good people. Find trusted companions, people who value the word of God, people who are truthful and honest, people who will be honest and real with you when you say, hey, is there anything in my life I need to work on? They're like, no, you're awesome. Yeah, that's not a good friend. Now, don't, don't ask that of everyone. They need to be trusted. People that you know will tell you the truth in love to see you develop and grow. Number three is this, move out of your comfort zone. David's comfort zone was the sheep in the field with his harp. His comfort zone was not the battlefield, but he was willing to go there because God called him to go there. You have to be willing to move out of your comfort zone for God to use you. Well, I'm just waiting for the Lord to just use my life in amazing ways. What, what have you done different in the last 20 years? Well, not a whole lot. Move out of your comfort zone. I'm not good at that, or I'm afraid. Come on, let's move forward. And then pray for courage, because some of this is going to take some guts. David has a massive resource beyond his own power that operates for him, and it's this, and it's same for you. The power, powerful living God of Israel was on his side, and he knew it. He knew it. Those 15 things that we read... In fact, can we put those back up again? We'll just kind of scroll, give them a few seconds, and we'll scroll, just kind of glance over those. Maybe the next slide. And then that last one. Which of those rings most true for you? And let me ask you this. Do you want to live that way for the rest of your life? Are you okay with settling for that for the rest of your life? See, the issue here is courage. There will be sabotage. There will be things that come against you to try and tear you down and distract you. And it is frightening. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Right? It's frightening. God is with you. See, David goes down to the brook and he picks the stones. And in that moment, he's building the resolve to say, I can go and face this giant in the name of the living God of Israel. You're in that place. God wants to put you in that place between putting off the things that the world would put on you and facing the things that are standing in your way and saying, okay, God, who am I? Kneeling down at the brook, unhurried and calm. I love that. David just strolls down, unhurried, and he kneels down because he's not just getting the stones. He's spending time with God in this moment for you, realizing that the living God, the powerful living God of Israel is on your side, and he doesn't want you to lose sight. See, we all have obstacles we have to cut through. Quite often it's family, just like with David. In fact, all of us, to some degree or another, have to deal with family things 
in our lives, both present and past, others with authority and experience, and in Goliath, who, of course, is a picture of Satan, who comes against, who wants to steal and kill and destroy. I want to close with this. We need to remember this, that Jesus, Jesus went to the cross for you to make his power available to you. 1 John 3, verse 8 says this, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In the same way that David destroyed Goliath, Jesus destroyed the work of the enemy, and now he calls you to do the same, to stand in the authority and the power that you've been given to destroy the work of the enemy in your life and in the world around you. Christ defeated the power of darkness, and now God invites us to fight alongside of him. And by the way, that fight doesn't make us right with God because we're already right with God. This is not performance for acceptance. You're already there. Amen? I want you to close your Bibles, put down your notebooks. We're going to have a kneeling at the brook moment. I want to read a passage, in fact, just one verse out of one psalm. I want you to, as I read it, Think about what God is speaking to you through this. And this is just a little practical exercise that you can use in your life. Psalm 23, verse 3 says this. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I read that and I go, oh, I know that. I know that passage. It's the 23rd Psalm. Yeah, I know it. And then I gloss over it. Or I go, hey, that's, a great, that's great information. Or I would even so, go so far as to say, well, that's, that's truth. But listen to it again and attend to yourself, not to the passage. Like saying it this way, don't read the word, let the word read you. What does God want to speak to you? What do you receive when you hear this? Where it touches you as you open to your, yourself to receive from him. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to wait about 15 seconds just in silence. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Another time, one more time rather. This time, listen for the invitation. There's an invitation in here from God to you. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These are the words of David. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There is a massive resource beyond his own power operating on behalf of David. The powerful, faithful, almighty, living God of Israel. And he's there for you as well. We stand together as we close. The, the caution with these sermons and these messages is that we can 
rush out, hurry to the next thing. I know we're a little bit over this morning, and maybe you, in your own heart, you're looking at the clock going, Pastor, we're 10 minutes over. I've got places to be. <laughs> I get it. But I contend that there's nothing more important in your life at this moment than what God is wanting to speak to you right now. And I don't want to make a habit of going over time. I want to honor your time. But don't miss the moments at the brook. Don't miss what God wants to speak to you in those defining moments that will uncover the fig leaves, the, the symptoms, the false self, so that who you really are can start to emerge who God's created you to be. Father, today I ask that you would seal away these words, that you would tuck them away, Lord, that you would cause them to have deep, deep, deep impact in our lives. That we would move beyond the surface level and that we would go to those places, Lord, that are untouched and unexplored, as hard as it would be to go there. That you would speak to us and uncover things, Lord, and that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that you would be glorified, that people would be blessed, and that we would walk in absolute freedom as sons and daughters of the Most High. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a worship song. If you, need to, if you need to leave, that's totally fine. I understand. If you're able to stay for this last song, I invite you to do so. Our ushers are going to come forward to receive our, to receive our tithes and offerings uh, during this final song. Our prayer team, by the way, is available as well in the back of the room. And so uh, if you want someone to pray with you, please go ahead and, and pray with them in the back.